I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 24. Falling. Finish line. In 2009, I don't know where I get the idea or why, but one day I decide I'm going to run a 10K race. Other than during soccer games and a few years on the track team in my youth, I haven't exactly been a runner. Or at least not a distance runner. 10 kilometers is a lot of kilometers if you've never really run, are supremely overweight, and have just had a baby and a diagnosis of MS in the past year. But this is a thing I decide I'm going to do. Run 10K. Alone. I go to a running store and buy proper shoes for running on asphalt and concrete. The tiny woman who works there gives me tips on how to do tens and ones, which is to run for 10 minutes, then walk for one. Repeat. I sign up for the 10K online and try not to be overwhelmed by words like corral and best time. I put on some yoga pants and a stretched out old sports bra and wake up at 5.30 a.m. to run around the neighborhood before work. I do this a total of six times before the race. To call that training would be generous. On the day of the race, I'm standing in my corral alone. Well, alone in a crowd of 2,000 people. I'm freezing because it's 7.30 in the morning in early May. I'm wearing my ratty yoga pants, a slightly better bra, and the free t-shirt I got when I registered. Even though it's extra large, it feels really tight on me. I'm not so much afraid as awkward. Everyone's with their buddies or in big groups. They're all wearing sporty clothes that seem to fit them properly. What am I even doing here? By myself. I put my earbuds in and adjust my iPod, which is attached to my arm on this iPod attaching thing someone lent me. The firing gun goes off. The crowd surges. I press play on the perfectly crafted race playlist I've made. Maybe this is cheesy, but in case you're dying to know, the first song on the playlist is Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. I run. I do my tens and ones, passing the flags that mark each kilometer, through Kate Bush and Arcade Fire, through Canaan and The Clash, Vampire Weekend, and Magic System. I'm amazed at the people that line the streets, cheering us on, 
offering us water. The sun is out in full force now, and it's a lot warmer. I'm sweaty. My lungs feel like they're going to burst, but I push on. The last kilometer is the worst. It feels like another 10 for some reason. My legs are rubbery. I feel like I'm looking at the finish line forever. Like I will never actually arrive there. When I do arrive, I see Birdie in the crowd. She's two years old now, on top of the husband's shoulders, wearing her white sun hat, the one with the little flowers embroidered on it. The husband's pointing me out to her, and as I'm running toward the finish line, her voice cuts through the noisy crowd's shouts and the ringing of bells. Mom! And I think, Oh God, I have MS. I don't know why, but uh, this is when it hits me the most. Everything that happened in the past two years just pummels me at this moment. This moment I cross the finish line. I burst into tears, uncontrollable sobs, and the two of them run over, hugging me and cheering. Geez, you just did that, Parisi, he says to me, kissing me, even though I'm nothing but tears and sweat and I cannot possibly smell good. The husband's mother is there too, and ever the nurse, she starts quizzing me on my vitals. She hands me a banana and a bagel, which I scarf down once I stop crying. I get my participation medal, and although it took me an hour and a half to do it, I am so proud of myself. I just ran 10K, and everything is going to be all right. Time passes. I keep up with the running. I get up at 5.30 a.m. twice a week and run for an hour all around our neighborhood. It's amazingly quiet, the city at that hour. There are hardly any cars on the road, and even fewer people. I sometimes pass young men, construction workers, sitting on their front porches, sleepily waiting for the truck full of other young men to come and pick them up. I like that they always have a giant cooler at their feet, the kind you'd take on a camping trip, but they just have their lunch for today in there. I also pass women, of all ages and ethnicities, standing at bus stops, going to whatever jobs they're going to so early in the morning. They hold their handbags close. They look tired. I smile at them. Sometimes they smile back, but not always. I wonder if they think I must be pretty privileged to be jogging at this time of morning instead of already dressed and on my way to work. These early morning runs are the only real time I have to myself. Just me and my thoughts, me and the quiet, me and my bursting lungs as I run down streets, through cemeteries, and over streetcar tracks. It's not that I love running at all or getting up so early, but more, I love the time alone that's so precious when you're married and a mother with a full-time job and a house to clean when you get home. 
more time passes. The husband is still so cute to me, even though he's changed a lot. He keeps his hair really short and spiky now. His shoulders are broader, his chest and body thickened out with age and the diet of being married to an Italian. He's had laser eye surgery, so he doesn't wear glasses anymore. And when he had dental surgery to fix some damaged teeth, without asking, they went ahead and straightened out his fangs, a feature I loved, the way they puffed out his lip. He looks good, but a lot different than when we first met. He still wears nothing but cargo pants and t-shirts, though, dressing nothing like the cool, stylish guys I work with, but I don't care. He is still the one I love, cargo pants or not. On Strike Summer 2011 It's been more than a decade since the husband first grabbed my hand and kissed me hard in the basement of that bar. The lanky guy, who's now this man in front of me, creeping up on 40, with broad shoulders and a beer belly, tiny silver flashes across the night sky of his hair. God, I love him when I look over at him. He infuriates me and excites me, even now, when we're tired and run down because Birdie, at age four, is like having three children all at once, screaming relentlessly in your face. We work all day and come home, and she yells at us all night until she mercifully falls asleep. Then we go to our room, where we talk in whispers, because we're afraid she'll hear us and wake up and yell at us more. Where we add a tiny hook and eye lock to the door so we can have sex at night without me worrying she's going to walk in. Where we lie together talking and giggling like teenagers until we fall asleep. In the mornings, I find him less adorable. He sleeps in while I get up and get ready first, so then I can get Birdie up and get her ready. I look in our room and see him just sitting there on the edge of the bed, staring at the closet. Meanwhile, I get her on the toilet, wrangle her into clothes, plead with her to brush her teeth, endure the screaming as I try to brush her hair or get her to brush it. I look in, and he's still just sitting there, staring. I want to scream at him, at her, at everyone. Sometimes we do scream. It's a terrible way to start the day. It isn't perfect, but what relationship is? What marriage is 100% sunshine and roses, especially with a toddler? I love the husband, and he loves me. In spite of our exhausting hamster wheel life, despite our differences and diverging interests, there's still plenty of common ground, and the foundation of our relationship is our similar spirit, the way we fight hard for the things and people we love, our weird sense of humor, our own secret language. 
how he buys me the most perfect gifts for every occasion, a collection of necklaces and pendants that are unique and strange and so exactly me. How we still smirk at one another, still make out all the time, and still have sex pretty much every day, except when we're way too tired or grumpy. We are still, after all this time, totally into each other. I feel absolutely confident that no matter how we sometimes argue or annoy each other, we're a team, a dedicated couple who has each other's back. In the middle of July that year, the husband goes away on a guy's weekend with his old pals from high school a mild-mannered bunch who like role-playing card games and pot-smoking. I love these guys. I consider them my own friends, and I'm glad he's getting a weekend away from our domestic life. But when he returns, something's wrong. He's completely different, and I don't know why. He's suddenly sullen, quick to anger. His jaw is tighter It seems like everything I say is the wrong thing to say. He insists on enrolling Bertie in full-time daycare during the summer, even though he's a teacher and off, and even though it costs a lot of money and makes no sense. This makes me really angry, and we argue about it. I'm just supposed to go to work all day and pay for super expensive daycare so you can stay home and do whatever you want? And not even hang out with Bertie, the kid you wanted so badly? But he doesn't budge. And so I reason that at the very least, he'll get some of the stuff around the house done. Pull up those embarrassing weeds in the front yard, replace the screen door at the back of the house, paint the spare room. He does none of it. He does nothing. All day long, Bertie goes to daycare. All day long, I go to work. All day long, he... I don't know. I don't know what he does. He plays video games. I can see that. He drinks a lot. The recycling bin tells me that. It's like he's on strike. He's become remote, absent, even though he's right in front of us. It's making me an angry, nervous wreck. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Summer turns into fall. The husband turns into someone else completely. It goes on like this for months. His jaw tighter, his eyes dull. Bertie and I chat at dinner, and he's there physically, but not there at all. I start taking her everywhere without him, because he doesn't want to come to the park anymore, 
or to people's houses or kids' birthday parties or any of the other things we used to do, the three of us, together. Bertie and I do art projects on the big dining table while he watches TV. We carve jack-o'-lanterns, just the two of us, wrap Christmas presents without him, make a million valentines for her class. All while he sits there, staring at the TV, beer in hand. I guess I was being primed for single parenthood. Funny to realize that now. During these six months, there are also good times. There are days when he's lovely and goofy and sweet and into me and into being a dad. There are days when we feel like a family. But mostly, things just get worse and worse between us. There are times when I look at him and it's like he's looking through me. We argue a lot because I don't know what the fuck is wrong with him. He won't talk to me about it. Not knowing makes me angrier. I don't like him a lot of the time, even though I so desperately love and miss him. He stops coming to bed at the same time as me, preferring to stay downstairs and watch hours and hours of TV. I start to take food to bed with me. Food fills the gaping holes of knowledge, the things I don't know, the questions he won't answer. I feel dismissed, invisible. I eat to quell the gnawing pain in my gut that isn't hunger, unless you count the hunger for a different life or the yearning to be seen again. Night after night in our bed alone, I eat cereal, toast, cookies, crackers, writing endlessly into my notebook. What's happened to him? Where has my husband gone? Why did I ever agree to get married? This is such bullshit. As I put on more and more weight, he starts working out. He gets trim and fit and buys a bunch of new clothes, pants without cargo pockets, nice shirts, shoes that aren't sneakers. He starts wearing a tie to work every day. He styles his hair for what seems like hours every morning. He looks good. I know what you're thinking, because in hindsight, it's obvious and probably at the top of the top five things to look for if you think your spouse is cheating. But I wasn't looking for clues because I didn't think he was cheating. I didn't even consider it. I mean, not seriously. One morning, he's painstakingly choosing his outfit for the day. I half-jokingly say, You're such a fucking dandy all of a sudden. Are you cheating on me or something? He spits back. As if. When would I even have the time? Which seems as true a thing as he could say. Our lives are so busy. When would anyone have the time to have an affair? I feel sheepish for even suggesting it. Of course he isn't cheating on me. Everything is falling apart. I know that. But this all must just be a phase. 
a normal phase of marriage. Or he's just having a midlife crisis or something. At least he hasn't bought a Ferrari. The thing about truth and trust. Was I really, actually, so trusting? I've wondered myself, you aren't the only one. Did I really, truly trust my husband when we were married? The answer always comes back to me as yes. When we met, I knew, because he told me, that he'd cheated on each of his serious girlfriends before me. He knew that although I hadn't ever cheated in the traditional sense, sex, I had fallen into deep emotional relationships with other people while in each of my serious relationships. I always had someone else lined up and ready to go. But here's how we rationalized it. Those days were over. We were young then. We were wilder. We were still experimenting. We weren't mature. Now, we rationalized. Now we were in our mid-twenties, and this was different. Most importantly, now we were making a vow. A vow of marriage, of solidarity, of unity. A contract that not only implied trust, but was predicated on it. Without trust, There was nothing. This is how I saw it, anyway. After I found out he'd been lying to me, all of this evaporated. I didn't know what was real. That's the thing about trust. It's only good until it's broken. That he broke it was a fact. The details remained and remain fuzzy. He lied a lot that day when he dropped the bomb on me. You can't blame him. He was in a panic. He lied on top of lies, trying to minimize the hurt, not realizing that more lies wasn't the way to do that. At first he said it was only one time. He'd only slept with her that one time, the night he didn't come home to me and Birdie. Then he said actually he'd slept with her two times, the other being the night of the grade 12 commencement three months earlier. He maintained it was only those two times. Finally, he settled it. They'd been having a full-blown sexual relationship for three months. Not a one-time mistake. A series of deliberate choices. Over and over again, they would get into our car and drive to her condo. They'd walk together from our car to her building. Go inside and have sex. His wedding band, her free spirit. He'd shower, because of course later that night he'd be having sex with me. He'd leave to pick up Bertie from daycare. He'd get dinner started. I'd come home from work. Over and over again. For three months, he says. He went between her place and ours, the place that was his wife and daughter, 
three months only. I didn't know what to believe. I was already departed from this world and lost in a vortex of unmanageable pain. He spoke to me, but it was like I was floating above us. I could see me crying and shouting. I could see us fighting and fucking and calling the real estate agent. Nothing was real. Those days and weeks and months were underwater. But this is where we left it. My husband had an affair for three months because that is what he says is the truth. The trouble is, how do you trust the truth when it comes from a liar's mouth? And this is the thing about trust and truth. The thing I have to live with every single day. Was the affair really three months? Was it a year? Two? Was it the whole marriage long? Were there other women and other times? Twelve years is a long time for a really good liar to lie. How do I trust anything he says ever again? How do we raise Birdie together if there's no trust? The only way to co-parent effectively was to trust him right away, right after his string of lies was revealed. I had to trick myself into trusting him. But I wonder sometimes if trust has a different meaning for me now. Now, it's a lot less about certainty and more about faith. Now, I have to just go on what he says. I have to believe in him. I have to. That's the only way any of this works. The Well. The man with the white shirt is fixing a window blind. The one in Bertie's room, that's fallen down three times now. The third time, hitting me in the face, splitting my lip. I can do so many things, you know. Why not this? I can carry my own mortgage and own a car. I can single parent, captain a soccer team, and have a successful career. But every single thing I hang, including this window blind, falls. Shelves, curtain rods, paintings, everything, they all fall. I mean, so what? But in the moment of the fallen blind and the split lip, I feel hopeless, helpless, so alone and exhausted. I text white shirt. He's here now, gorgeous, my not-boyfriend of two and a half years, standing on Bertie's bed, holding a power drill and fixing the blind, while I sit beside his legs, doing nothing but feeling sorry for myself. Sorry and sad that I once had a husband and now I don't. That my husband would have hung the blind properly the first time, and instead I live alone and hang things badly. 
I imagine the ex-husband somewhere at this moment, having the best day ever in his best life ever, now that I'm not in it. I feel like I'm falling down the well again. Lost in the loop where I go back to the beginning of this chapter of my life. Back to the bomb over and over again, replaying events of the past instead of living in the present. White Shirt stops what he's doing and sits beside me. He takes my hand and looks right into my eyes. I will never let you fall down the well, he says. It has a startling effect on me. Like, not to be melodramatic, but it actually startles me. I sob into his lap. I'm so grateful he's here. This man who's always searching for himself and for another happiness, but who still comes over in a flash to fix a broken blind or read comics with Bertie or to stop me from falling down the well. Later that night, even though the man with the white shirt is out somewhere having Saturday night, he sends me a text. I've always got your back, it says. And he does. You're listening to Alone, a love story. Written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC podcast. The story editor is Mark Apollonio. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Mark, here in our hometown of Toronto. Head over to cbc.ca slash alone. If you can believe it, I still have a lot more to say about each episode. More stories, a lot about music, and photos, too. You can also find me on Twitter at AloneCBC. Stick with me. I want to tell you about why I'm happiest alone when I'm getting lost. Hey, there's another CBC podcast I want to tell you about, Escaping Nexium. One woman's journey to take down the bizarre self-help group Nexium that attracted actors, politicians, the super wealthy, and is now the center of an FBI investigation. Subscribe now. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.